are seeing all of these things taking place, we watched Dr. Aker's red hair bobbling back and forth in the, in the American embassy there when he went in to uh, visit with Dr. Graham some Pentecostalists. Uh, this is the week in which we uh, get ready for Pentecost, and great things are happening in the world. This was an unprecedented visit uh, to Moscow by Dr. Graham. There's been a good bit of confusion about it in the press, and Dr. Akers has very kindly consented to speak to us uh, uh, this morning about uh, this trip to Moscow. I have told him that my sermon has three points and a poem. I've already left off the poem, and I can contract the three points. So, John, you, you, you're invited. <laughs> I won't take long. First of all, let me say that I know that uh, many of you, particularly that are resident here in Montreat, uh, knew about our going to the Soviet Union, and you were praying for us, and I deeply appreciate that. I certainly would echo what Dr. Graham said privately on many occasions, and that was that we sensed the prayers of God's people across the world. We were very much aware of the fact that we were going to a very different part of the world than that which is our normal realm of ministry, and you know that as well as I do. Uh, we knew that in some sense we were going into the lion's den, if I can use that analogy. We were going because we believed that God had led us there, but we knew also that there could potentially be many problems, and we sensed very much our need of God's leading and direction in every possible way. Let me say just a word about the invitation and how it came to us. We had been in contact with Soviet church officials for many years. They had sought Dr. Graham out at such things as meetings of the, world, uh, of the Baptist World Alliance and other occasions when they would have opportunity to meet some of us. And always they had stressed that Soviet believers by the tens of thousands were praying for us and were praying that someday it might be possible for Dr. Graham to visit the Soviet Union. Uh, we had been in discussions with Soviet officials, both church officials and government officials, for several years, actually since Dr. Graham's visit to Hungary in 1977. Uh, shortly afterward, we were in contact with Soviet governmental officials. Because you see, the thing that is true of that part of the world, whether we like it or not, is that it's different than any other part of the world. Whenever Dr. Graham goes to any place in the world, he goes at the invitation of the churches. That certainly was true with the Soviet Union as well. But the thing that is different is that any invitation by the churches has to be approved by the state authorities. And that automatically puts it in a different realm. Well, we had been in discussions for some years. There had been actually several times when it looked like an invitation might actually be approved. And then events would happen, such as Afghanistan, that seemed to change all of that, did change all of that. However, this spring, an invitation was approved. Uh, on the formal sense, the invitation was an invitation for Dr. Graham to attend and address a conference sponsored by the Russian Orthodox Church, which is the largest uh, religious body in the Soviet Union, and the uh, Christian body. And the uh, invitation was to attend a conference that was dealing with the subject of peace in our time. Now, I want to be very candid with you that that raised a number of concerns on our part, 
And if you've read the press, you know that it raised a number of concerns on the part of others as well, including high-level officials within our own government. We knew that from time to time, various religious bodies in the Soviet Union had done things like this, and they had always turned out to be propaganda gestures, strongly approving Soviet foreign policy and strongly rejecting explicitly uh, Western foreign policy initiatives, things of this nature. I want to be honest, we agonized over the decision whether or not to accept this invitation. We knew very frankly that if we did not accept this invitation, very likely an invitation would never come again to that part of the world, either in, in the Soviet Union or in the other countries of Eastern Europe. We also became aware of the fact that unlike previous conferences of this nature, there were going to be a fair number of Westerners going to this conference, including the head of the Baptist World Alliance and the general secretary of the Baptist World Alliance, uh, some American, various other American church officials, uh, the head of the Lutheran Church in America, for example, the presiding bishop, and some others. And this gave us some encouragement. Ultimately, though, it came down to Dr. Graham's conviction that God had opened a door and that we must be very careful before we shut that door. If it was God that was opening it, we needed to go through it in spite of the risks, in spite of the a possibility of being used in a propagandistic way. And he went out of a firm conviction, not only that it was the right decision, but that the gospel is stronger than any propaganda that any other ideology might happen to come up with. And so we went. We went partly to attend that conference, but very frankly, our real purpose in going, of course, was to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if there had not been those opportunities, certainly that would not, we would not have accepted any invitation to go. The opportunity to preach at that conference of religious leaders, some 500 of them, including many representatives from non-Christian religions. The opportunity then to preach in several of the churches. These were the things that we knew and expected. And so two Sundays ago, it's hard for me to realize the time flies so rapidly, but two Sundays ago, Dr. Graham was preaching the gospel to a packed church, the Moscow Baptist Church, and then we were rushing away. There were hundreds outside that we didn't even know about till after we'd left the church. And then we were rushing away to the large patriarchal cathedral there in Moscow, again, a packed church, where after the long Russian Orthodox service, the Divine Liturgy, Dr. Graham and several other leaders were introduced at the end of the service and invited to say a few words, which Dr. Graham did. And he spoke for about, I suppose, 10 or 15 minutes on the meaning of the cross of Jesus Christ and how, in spite of our different traditions as Christians, the cross unites us and what that means to us. And then he did speak at that conference, and you may have seen, I hope that you have seen some of the more positive press reports that have indicated that that conference came out far better than we had expected. And it was largely due to the influence of the Western delegates that were there. The final statement, and incidentally, Dr. Graham was only an observer at the conference. He was only there for uh, two of the sessions, the opening session and then uh, the session at which he was to speak. 
Uh, so he was not there for the end of the conference, although some of us were attending some of the other sessions, again, as observers. Uh, but the conference did come out much better than we had anticipated. It did not turn out to be a conference condemning American foreign policy or praising Soviet foreign policy or anything like that. Instead, it was a balanced statement uh, urging the leaders of all the nations to face seriously the problems that there are in the world uh, with the nuclear age. And I think as Christians we have a responsibility along that line as long as we understand that we are not to uh, become involved in, in the political issues uh, of praising one nation over against another, but we are instead called uh, to speak uh, from the Bible on what God would have us say. But the unexpected thing about Dr. Graham's visit to us was the number of opportunities that we had privately he was received by some of the highest level officials of the Soviet government. And in fact, he was received on the highest level of any American since the beginning of the Reagan administration, including our ambassador in Moscow. We took advantage of those visits. I was with him on a number of those visits. Uh, some of them were, one of them particularly, the very highest level was simply a one-on-one -on -one meeting. But in each one of those, every one of those, Dr. Graham not only listened to what they had to say, including some of their complaints about American foreign policy and so forth, uh, not only did he have an opportunity to speak uh, as well uh, from his perspective as an American, but he also took uh, the occasion to speak of some of the things that concern you and me. Uh, such things as religious toleration in the Soviet Union and how that is perceived in the West. Uh, specifically, the problem of the uh, Siberian Pentecostals that have been in the basement of the American Embassy trying to immigrate for several years. But in addition to that, on every occasion, Dr. Graham spoke of his personal faith in Jesus Christ as the only hope of the world. And I want to assure you that those were thrilling things to sit there with people who in some instances are members of the Central Committee of the Communist Party, people who are professed atheists, and to share with them our conviction as Christians that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world and that ultimately he is the one whose kingdom will triumph. We do not know what might have taken place as a result of those private visits. I think, though, of one young atheist, a very intellectual man, a man who I would say has a great future in the Soviet government, uh, to whom someone uh, gave a Russian Bible. And at the end of it, he told us, he said, my eyes have been enlightened during this week. My view of Christianity was very narrow. Yes, I'm still an atheist but I want to read the Bible and find out more about what it has to say. Who knows what God will do as a result of those private visits? This, frankly, was some of the problem that we had with the American press, because many of the things that we felt that we did that were the most constructive and that were the most helpful for Soviet believers were things that were said privately and could not be discussed with the press. The press, I think, would have wished that we had made some public statement that would have been a great media event, but very frankly, in the long run, would not only have not done any good for the Soviet believers, but would actually 
have hurt them in their attempts to have more freedom of worship and of religion. Let me say some things about my observations of the Soviet church scene. Of course, since we've been involved in uh, looking to that ministry there, I've studied it uh, rather thoroughly, and it was interesting to observe. You can't observe a lot in five and a half days. I was there longer than that and had uh, deeper discussions perhaps, but you don't know everything. You're not an expert, and the first thing you need to know is that you don't know very much. But you do know, and I know, and we know, that the Soviet church faces many, many difficulties. Uh, Dr. Graham sometimes has been painted, I'm afraid, as naive and uh, sort of a latter-day Jane Fonda coming out of the Soviet Union. Uh, we are very much aware of the restrictions and the problems that Soviet believers have. There have been times in not too many years past that their situation has been very, very restricted, more so than it is today. There was a time, in fact, during the Stalinist regime in the late 1930s that for practical purposes the church had ceased to exist as an institution. It was just virtually non-existent. Today there are about 20,000 places of worship in the Soviet Union. Now for 250 or 260 million people, that's not a large number but it's better than none that you had in the 1930s. And incidentally, that is not just Christian places. That includes uh, uh, Islamic and Buddhist places because uh, the uh, Soviet Union is very polyglot in a lot of ways. There are many religions in that vast country today. Uh, so we're thankful for what there is, and yet we're utterly realistic about the difficulties that there are there. Most of the problems that we hear about in the West come from believers who, out of conscience or for other reasons, are the so-called unregistered church. That is, they have not agreed to go along with some of the restrictions that the government places upon them. Uh, there are others that uh, believe that they should follow the restrictions as closely as possible to keep the church doors open, and there are differences of opinion among them. I think one scholar pinpointed it this way. He said that in the Soviet Union, you have a certain degree of freedom of worship, but not freedom of religion. That is, if a person really wants to, he usually, in some areas at least, can find a place where he can come to a church and worship. But he does not have the freedom to... Uh, and the church does not have the freedom to have things like Sunday schools, uh, educational programs, uh, any kind of social welfare work, any things like this. The work of the church, by and large, is restricted to the worship services of the church. But that doesn't mean just 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Many of the churches have worship services virtually every day of the week. And by all accounts, those worship services are usually packed with people. So their situation is difficult, and I hope that you will pray for the situation of believers in the Soviet Union, that God will grant them a greater degree of freedom than they have right now, and most of all, that he will grant them the opportunities for spiritual growth that you and I take for granted. 
There's just one other observation that I would make, and it, of necessity, must be kind of off the cuff, although certainly the researchers of many other people would support it. And that is that within the Soviet Union today, as is true in so many other countries, you have a spiritual vacuum and a spiritual hunger in the hearts of many people. This is especially true among the young. They are disillusioned by the slogans of the past. And although some of them may mouth those slogans, they have lost confidence in them and in their reality. And there is within the heart, within the hearts of so many people, a deep spiritual hunger. They may not know what it exactly is. And many of the Soviet young people look to the West and they think that if only they could mimic the music of the West and Western young people or the styles of Western young people, then somehow they would be happier than they are. And yet, as is true in any secular society, whether it's in Western Europe or America or Eastern Europe, when a society leaves God out, ultimately the price is paid. And ultimately there is a spiritual hunger which nothing can fill except the living God. And so we pray for the Soviet Union, and I hope that you will as well. Pray that in ways that we would never understand or know, God would work. And God would work in ways that would bring a spiritual revival to that land that has known so many difficulties. On the surface of it, that would seem to be unrealistic. And yet I know it's not. I know it's not because I know the power of the living God. And I know the power of the Holy Spirit to come into lives and to change lives. And I also know it's not unrealistic because I've seen the quality of life of Soviet believers. They have been refined through the fires. They know what it is to stand for Christ in the midst of opposition. There are no gray areas with them. They know that the important thing in life is to belong to Christ and to stay with him. And although they lack many of the opportunities that we have, they are people who are disciples of our Lord Jesus and who in the ways that they have opened to them are seeking to witness for him. I believe that they have much to teach us by their dedication. I wonder how many of us, if we face the same difficulties they have faced through the years, how many of us would still claim the name of Christ? And yet they do, and they have great hope, and they pray that God will work in ways that are beyond our understanding to bring revival to that land. We don't know what was accomplished as a result of our visit. Only eternity will show that. We believe that there were concrete things that took place and we pray that that will be the case. We know it was the case in some instances. But we pray that in ways that are beyond our understanding, God will answer the prayers of his people. One of the most familiar of all of the, in fact, I believe there are about 34 miracles. It depends on how you count them in the four records of the gospel. But uh, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 uh, seems to have taken a special place in the minds and hearts of those who wrote our records of the gospel. 
Um, only the miracle of the resurrection of Christ is recorded in all four, except this miracle right here that we're going to read about right now. And so it made a tremendous impression. We live in the midst of a hungry world, both physically and spiritually. And perhaps when you stop to think about the incredible uh, thing which uh, the Lord Jesus did, and which was a miracle showing that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, you can understand something about this. Here is a little boy with only five barley loaves. Barley is the food of the poor. And five thin little barley cakes is all that he has. And there are two little dried fish, which his mother has prepared for him uh, for his lunch on the day in which he is to go and to hear the incomparable teaching and preaching of Jesus. And uh, then when you stop to think of the crowd that gathered, we will be told in this account that there were 5,000 men fed. And by putting Matthew, Mark, and Luke alongside John's account, we will know that women and children were also fed. So you could expect a crowd of perhaps as many as 15,000 people. I have often marveled at the, at the voice of Jesus. It must have been a tremendous voice to have made himself heard to 5,000 men and to the women and children who could gather. That in itself would be an enormous feat of strength. And yet he spoke and they listened. And uh, what faith is able to believe, God is able to perform. Now listen to these familiar words from John chapter 6, verse 1 following. After these things, uh, and that is after John the Baptist had been beheaded and Jesus' uh, uh, disciples are withdrawing for, to another place. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and a great multitude followed him because they were seeing the signs that he was performing on those who were sick. And Jesus went up into the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. A rabbi taught from a seated position. And Jesus sat, and uh, this is the place of authority, and from this position he speaks. Uh, this is after the feast of the Passover uh, was at hand. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing what a great multitude was coming to him, he saw all these thousands and thousands of people, up to as many as 15,000. Jesus asked a question. He said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread that these may eat? Where are we going to buy bread that these may eat? This he was saying to test him to test Philip, to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Now, Philip was a good Presbyterian. I think he was treasurer. Uh, Philip answered him, 200 denarii. He was on the budget committee. He wasn't the treasurer. Judas was already stealing. Uh, 200 denarii. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little bit. He asked him a question, and he gave him an answer. Uh, one of the disciples, you know, I think Jesus had a little humor 
when he spoke this because, listen, if there were 15,000 people in Montreat today, where would you feed them? At the coach house? At McDonald's? At Hardee's? Not all of those places could take care of them. So when he says there's 15,000 people here, and from the composite accounts, we know they were a long way from any villages or cities. How on earth are they going to be fed? Uh, one of his disciples, Andrew, and it's Andrew, and look how John puts it. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Always put that down. That's the only way you can tell who he is. Uh, Andrew is old What's-His-Name. Every time the disciples were being introduced, someone would say, here's Andrew, and they'd say, hi, Andrew, and then they'd say, you know, Simon Peter's brother. Oh, that Andrew. Uh, well, I'm glad to meet you. Everybody's heard about Peter. Andrew's had this, so you kids who have brothers or sisters who have excelled greatly will know about Andrew and how he felt. Well, Andrew, one of his disciples, Simon Peter's brother, said to him. Now, Andrew is a very humble, sweet soul, just the kind who could cozy up to a little boy. And he says in John alone, and Raymond E. Brown, a great Roman Catholic scholar, has a big two-volume commentary on the Gospel of John, and he brings this out remarkably. There is a lad here. Uh, the word here is a very affectionate, diminutive uh, term. There's a, there's a little boy here, a laddie here, they would say in Scotland. We don't have any uh, equivalent to it that uh, wouldn't sound babyish, but uh, John has made friends, uh, Andrew has made friends with this little boy. How else would he know he had two dried fish and five barley loaves? They got to talking, the little guy said, look here, I'll show you what my mother made. And he said, I got, I got five barley loaves and I got two, two fish. I'm going to let you have some of them. And I, I think he couldn't see over the crowd and and, and, and Andrew said, come on, I'll, I'll help you out. Get on my shoulders. And he carried him around someplace where he could see. There is a lad here. Now, this uh, brings me to say this. Uh, last Sunday, I couldn't be here, and I wanted so much to be. I got a beautiful poster back in my office that the children drew, and they drew a picture of me with my hair all scattered out. And uh, uh, the children in our morning school, they drew one of Mr. Massey and of Terry Taglarini, the church secretary, and even Tom. Uh, so we, we, we're all in there. there. There's a lad here. I remember reading an old, old story about some ancient German schoolmaster who taught little children that were just six, seven, and eight years of age. And he used to walk into his, his uh, classroom, and he would take off his cap with uh, great reverence, his hat. And someone said to him, I've noticed that you do this with a lot of uh, formality. You, you take your hat off in the greatest reverence, like you were walking in the presence of a king or a prince. And the old German schoolmaster said, I may be. He said, I never know what little lad here is growing to be up, uh, going to grow up to be someone who can do great and good things in the world. And of course, I got this from Oswald Hoffman, and he says the little lad was Martin Luther. Ozzie is the teacher for the Luther now. Uh, and uh, there is a lad here, and he has five barley loaves. And so anytime you see that little lad there, you know that there's uh, uh, great possibilities locked up in that little boy. 
Uh, many a little boy had watched a tea kettle lid bounce back and forth when his mother was making tea in England. But a little boy by the name of Watts watched it, and he had enough sense to realize that if that steam in that kettle could make that lid bounce, it might be able to make it do other things. And so when you go out and buy a 75-watt light bulb, you call his name out. He discovered the principle of how to use the energy in steam, uh, which revolutionized society, a little lad. You never tell what that little lad is going to do. Some weeks ago, I told uh, a story to one group uh, of a little boy on a great mansion in England, uh, had a big place, sort of like the Biltmore Estate, and there was a lake there, and a, a little fellow who stammered terribly, a little boy in the household, was playing near the lake and fell into it. And one of the gardeners saw him and ran to the lake and jumped in and went out into water over his head and got the little boy and got the water pumped out of him and got him breathing again. And his parents, who had heard him scream, uh, came running. And when their fright was finally allayed and their fears were gone and they realized that their precious little child was safe, they said to the gardener, there is no way we can thank you. We will be eternally grateful for what you've done for us because you've given us back our little boy. And we thought for sure he was dead. And they said, is there anything we can ever do for you? And uh, he was a humble man. And when they pressed him, wanting very sincerely to do some favor for him, he said, well, I have a young son. And he is a bright little boy, and he's keen to go to school to be a doctor. And uh, I don't have that kind of money to send him to school to be a doctor. I know how that feels. I got one who's going off to college next year. He wants to go to pre-med. Uh, this, this, this was the request that he said to them. And the, the uh, a father said, well, this is not any problem. We have some scholarships at the university, and we can make one available. And they did. And that little boy's name was Fleming. He discovered penicillin. And later, Winston Churchill, during World War II, was about to die because he was an old man with pneumonia. And they tried to figure out how to save his life. And so they called Sir Alexander Fleming, the most distinguished physician in all of Great Britain, who came and supervised his treatment with penicillin. And it was able to arrest the uh, germ which was active in bringing the great prime minister so close to the gates of death. You see what's there? And later Winston Churchill wrote a letter and he said in his letter, it's very rare in one's life that he has his own life saved twice by the same family. Your father saved me when I was a little boy drowning on our estate. And then you saved me later when you became a physician. And this is one of the great letters that Winston Churchill has written. There is a lad here. So never put down these little morning schools, the daycare centers. The, that's why the Russians are trying to keep the children out of church. 
That's why in those photographs you see from Russia, you don't see any children going into church. If you can keep a child away from that, uh, for little children love these accounts of Jesus, and they want to believe. And it's very important for us that we see the possibilities that are locked up there and that we teach our children about Jesus. Well, Jesus, um, when, when Andrew came and said, there's a lad here and he has five barley loaves and two fishes, but just what are these among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. And there was much grass in that place. I remember when I used to read that and they thought I was talking about marijuana uh, the, in the 60s. Uh, now there was much grass in the place. What that tells you is it was springtime. It was close to the Passover. And it tells you also that the vivid accounts of it that are given by Mark and by Luke and by uh, John and by Matthew, uh, all of these accounts are telling us that the people with their multicolored garments and sitting on that green grass look like uh, well-planned flower beds that were all out there. Uh, uh, the thousands of them by fifties and by hundreds. Uh, and when you think of this enormous multitude of people, what an enormous miracle is going to have to take place. Now then, this is the great scar scarcity. It seemed so ludicrous to come up there with that little boy's lunch of two pickled fish or dried fish and the five little barley loaves before such a crowd as this. But we have a great Savior. He is the Son of God. And John will have you know from the very first part of his record of the gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And that word is the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. In another place, Jesus said, I am always doing the works of my father. What is his father always doing? His father is always making bread. His father is always making bread. For in back of the flour of wheat, there is a field, and back of the flour that you eat, there is a, a field of wheat, and back of that there's the miller. All of these things that are going together, uh, God's always making fish. I've been told that one fish can lay a million eggs. If all of them hatch, that's a lot of fish. And God's always making fish. God's always healing people. He's always healing people. And Jesus said, I do the works of my Father. What he does here is a little time-lapse photography. He speeds it up. He speeds it up and capsules what might have taken place over a long period of time into a moment of time. The great Savior has these Poor barley loaves. Now, that, that's not the bread of the rich. That's the bread of the poor. It's simple barley loaves. And uh, Jesus takes these in his hands, and he prays to his God, who is the creator of heaven and earth and all of the things that are in it. He prays to God, and immediately 
he begins to bless and to break these. Someone has said it was springtime when he blessed the bread, and it was harvest when he break it. He blessed it and he began to give it to his disciples, and his disciples began to give it to others. And that's what we are supposed to be, a passers out of bread, both spiritual and physical bread. We are to be people who are concerned for those who live in a vacuum like the Soviet Union or China or Cuba, or even in the United States who are insulated against the real true values of life because of the sophisticated casuistries of commercial television which tell us that man's life consists only in the abundance of the things that he possesses. And here Jesus comes to teach us that we have a bread that satisfies. And that's one of the interesting things that as we read, he distributed to those who were seated and likewise also of the fish as much as they wanted. As much as they wanted. That's an interesting thing. One of the other records of this miracle tells us until they were all satisfied. Now I've read some preposterous explanations of how this took place. There are some who say that Jesus simply flashed a warm sunny smile on everyone and they all uh, shared their lunch and that that was the way the miracle. Well that's not what they understood here and you might as well stick with the text. It's a lot more interesting and it's a lot more true. I'm like the old black preacher who said, said the Bible sure sheds a lot of light on these commentaries. Jesus therefore took the loaves and having given thanks he distributed to those who were seated and likewise also of the fish as much as they wanted. They got as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, when they were satisfied, Jesus satisfies, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. They didn't want the, any waste. Even though he was powerful enough to create such vast amount of food to feed this multitude, he would not be wasting things. And this is another lesson for us in the affluent West. And so they gathered them up, and they filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. They all remember this. It makes a tremendous impression upon them. You see, this is a miracle which didn't take place uh, like the resurrection of Lazarus in a graveyard with just the little village of Bethany's mourners present. It's a miracle that did not simply take place in, uh, along the street side when the widow of Nain has her son raised from the dead. But the reason it's in all four records of the gospel is it's a miracle that took place in, in front of 5,000 men who were hungry not counting the women and the children in the group. So a vast multitude witnessed what takes place. When therefore the people saw the sign, John always wants us to know that these miracles are a sign to teach us. They're to teach us some great things about God. When the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is of a truth, the prophet, who is to come into the world. Later they'll have that knowledge expanded, greater than a prophet. Jesus therefore perceiving, now this is interesting, 
Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. They want the bread man to be king. Withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. And if you do read uh, such things as Dostoevsky's uh, brothers Karamazov, you will read that when his younger brother, uh, Alyoshka, when the young brother Alyoshka becomes a Christian, and his brother comes back from Paris and uh, has been liberated from his belief in God and finds Alyoshka a priest, he tries to destroy his faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God by saying he was a fool not to go on feeding the multitudes with uh, bread. If he could turn uh, rocks into bread like the devil told him to, he should have listened to the devil and done that, that that would be the way to win the world. Well, it won't. How many well-fed people do you know who argue with each other and fight and quarrel and kill each other? The highest homicide rate in the United States is among uh, families. People are not starving in Britain and in Argentina. They're fighting each other, not over food. We, we uh, even when you have great amount of food. The, the untutored savages of Africa, if you say it that crudely, did not plunge us into World War II. But the most sophisticated minds in the world, in Germany, uh, with all of their scientific advancement, they were the ones who fell for the big lie of Adolf Hitler and brought us into the catastrophe that led to so much destruction. Well, Jesus alone satisfies. When the meal was finished, no one was hungry unless he had refused to eat. There may be someone here who does not know Jesus as Christ, the bread of life, and who did not want to believe in his eternal purpose, which is to fill the vacuum of our hungry souls. But he is here today. He is here in his great power to save. Matthew recorded this miracle because Jesus is the king. When the wise men came in Matthew, they said, we have come seeking him who is to be king of the Jews. Jesus be the king, the Messiah. Nailed on his cross, behold the king. He is in control of all things. He can do this miracle. Mark, who portrays Jesus as the servant, knows that he understands when people are hungry and he wants something done about it. And we are, who are his representatives are to do it in a double harvest. A harvest for their hungry bodies as well as a, hungry, a harvest for their hungry souls. Luke portrays Jesus uh, as behold the man. That is one who identifies with us, who has compassion, who can feel our deepest needs who is concerned about a renegade tax collector named Zacchaeus or a sinful woman of the street who washes his feet with tears and wipes the teardrops away with the hairs of her head. And John, who also records this miracle, says, Behold the Son of God. This is the whole purpose of John's book. He wants us to believe that he is the Son of God so that believing we might have 
faith through his name. Many other signs, therefore, did Jesus also perform in the presence of his disciples, says John in verse 30 of chapter 20, which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now you have heard this proclamation of the gospel. I invite you to take Christ, the bread of life, into your life to be Lord and master of your existence. You can take home Betty Crocker's recipes and look at it, but you won't get your hunger satisfied. You can take better homes and gardens and look at the pictures of the beautiful recipes that are there. But until you eat food, you won't be satisfied. There are plenty of people who go on a hunger strike and will not eat, and they allow themselves to be starved to death in the very presence of what would sustain them. And there are people who do this spiritually. Christ, the bread of life, is here. I offer him to you. I say what John Wesley said, oh, let me commend my Savior to you. Take Christ, the bread of life. Take him into your life as a part of your whole existence to govern over your thoughts and your deeds and your family and your life. Now let us pray. Oh God, our Father, today has been a big service because we have heard the testimony of one who has come back from a vast land where multitudes are denied the simplest privileges which we enjoy. And we do pray for them, for those who are in the gulags, for those who are in the prison camps, for those who have no Bible to read, for those who have no Christian groups with which they can meet. And we pray for freedom to come. Yet we thank thee that the little seed of the gospel is powerful and that it can be sown in such a way that it can split a rock in two and that the seeds of the gospel which are sown, we pray, may bring forth much fruit. And we thank you that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the King of the universe, that he has all creative power in his hands and that he speaks to us today as his followers and his disciples, not to be embarrassed at the enormity of our task of trying to reach the whole world for him, but to bring what we have, especially our little children, to him, and to give what we have into his gracious hands, and let him direct and guide, and then we'll see the whole world reach for Christ. Oh, God, we pray for our hungry world and for our own hungry souls, and we long to feast upon thee still. We turn to thee, thou fountainhead, because only the water which comes from you can slack the thirst which exists in our souls. And